Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Cybersecurity Podcast. We're bringing together the best security leaders from across the UK to discuss their industry passions, challenges, and ideas. I'm Stephen Mann, and I connect businesses with talented security professionals. But today, I'm your host for this roundtable discussion. Today, I'm joined by Darren Desmond, the CISO at AA Group, Chris Pogue, the DFIR Director at CyberCX, Chris Powell, the Group Director of Security and IT at MCOPA, and Ed Williams, the VP of Consulting and Professional Services uh, across EMEA at Trustwave. How are we all? Are we all okay? Yeah, fantastic. Thanks. (laughs) Brilliant stuff. Cheers, Jens. So before we delve any deeper into our conversation today uh, based around threat intelligence, I want to pass around the room and get some introductions to you. Let's learn a little bit more about you before we go any further. So, Darren, do you want to kick us off with a brief introduction to yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm currently the Chief Information Security Officer at the AA. Uh, we're, we're probably best known for our roadside recovery vehicles, um, bright yellow livery, picking people up off the roadside. Um, but we also offer a number of different um, financial services, such as insurance, um, driving lessons with, with BSM and uh, the AA Driving School. And also um, we do some service maintenance repair for fleet as well under our prestige um, business line. So quite a diverse organization. I've been with the company for five years now and still still enjoying the challenge. Fabulous stuff. Thank you very much, Darren. Um, and Chris, oh, let me pass to you now. All right. Thank you, uh, Stephen. Appreciate it. And I'm sure you all can tell from my accent. Uh, I am a bloody rebel, uh, not from uh, the UK. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I'm the director of digital forensics and internet response for CyberCX. Uh, we're an Australian cybersecurity company, uh, 1,400 strong, predominantly based in Sydney, uh, but with expansions into the United States and the United Kingdom. I've uh, been doing incident response and forensics for about 25 years. I was a U.S. Army officer, uh, conducted investigations in the military, uh, and then had a subsequent uh, career in consulting. Um, and at present, I am also... Uh, a professor of cybersecurity and international business at Oklahoma State University. Fabulous stuff. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, Chris Powell, let's pass to you now, sir. Nicole, I'm Chris Powell. I am the group director of security and IT at MCOPA. My broad responsibilities are information security, the IT team, and product security, which just involves being the security guy that everyone comes to with every question. My background is government. So I was a spook for many years with GCHQ, the NSA, the likes, doing lots of pretty pretty hardcore vulnerability research, lots of technical stuff, lots of 5G hacking of, of Huawei systems, etc. And then moved out of that to become a cyber leader and still doing a lot of vulnerability research on the side. Fantastic stuff. Thank you, Chris. And uh, Ed, last but by no means least. Very kind. Hey, everybody. I'm Ed Williams. Uh, I head up the CPS team in EMEA. For Trustwave, uh, Trustwave is an MSS, CPS type of business consulting. Um, in terms of my own personal background, I've been pen testing, gosh, for 20 plus years. Um, that's why I've got all this grey hair. Um, and I tell everybody I've pen tested everything from submarines to rockets and everything in between. So, yeah, but a very, very exciting career. Fabulous stuff. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, good to see we've got a, a, a nice diverse background in terms of what you guys have done before hopefully that's going to feed into some interesting conversations and and different viewpoints as we move forward and now a word from our sponsor qualis but who are qualis qualis is recognized as an industry pioneer 
and a premium provider of cutting-edge cloud-based security compliance and IT solutions, backed by a global subscriber base exceeding 10,000 customers. Wallace is incredibly proud to be supporting Evolution Podcasts. Together we are dedicated to addressing the prevalent challenges in the ever-changing landscape of cybersecurity. Qualys assists organizations in consolidating and automating their security and compliance solutions onto a unified platform, resulting in enhanced agility, improved business outcomes, and a significant cost reduction. Utilizing a single agent, the Qualys Cloud Platform delivers continuous critical security intelligence and remediation with comprehensive coverage extending across on-premise, endpoints, servers, public and private cloud, containers, and mobile devices, ensuring robust security across a diverse environment. For more information, please visit Qualys.com and see for yourself how Qualys can have your business manage and reduce your cyber risk at speed, at scale, and in a quantifiable way. So now we're all introduced. We're going to move on to today's topic. Um, you've all prepared a question or a statement uh, focused on the topic of threat intelligence uh, today. What we're going to do is we're going to work, around, work our way around the room. I'm just going to do that again so I don't sound like I've done something weird. <clears throat> what we'll do is we'll work our way around the room and I'm going to ask each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind the question that you've brought up to today's uh, today's topic. And each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on that question or that statement. And of course, if we feel appropriate to do so, please do feel free to open into general discussion as well. Don't feel like you have to stay quiet until it's your turn to talk. If you, um, I, I really do prefer a bit more back and forth. Uh, so do feel free to jump in as and when you want to. Um, so we'll start off with Darren, uh, your question. I'm going to pass over to you. What was it you wanted to bring to the table today? Thank you, Steve. So, um, I, I like um, like Chris um, Chris Pogue, I spent a, a lot of my time in the military. I was in the military police special investigation branch the majority of my career. I spent a couple of years in military intelligence, and the the biggest um, the biggest thing I took away from that, that I guess I brought into the uh, commercial world, was around threat intelligence collection. Not only that, if you, if you conduct an investigation as part of the defer process, um, you know, it's it's around um, what really is the most important element of threat intelligence collection management, and why do you think that's important in a commercial context? Okay, interesting. So, if we if we, if we throw that out, Chris Pogue, thoughts? Yeah, I think you know, having a military background uh, as 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 Darren does, it, it gives you a different perspective, especially if you've operated in theater. Um, it, it, threat intelligence informs decisions, right? And, and in, in some instances, right, those are life and death decisions. Now, we don't necessarily face those in, in the cybersecurity space right now. But I, I think to your point, Darren, the acquisition of that intelligence is not the end game, right? The end game should be, and now with that information, we can do something differently, whether that's we adjust security posture, we we fine tune or instrument our detection technologies, we look for attacker IOCs and TTPs across a wide range of intelligence sources. I think that's the bit that um, as, as you know, prior service members in our transition into the private sector um, is, is our biggest challenge, right? We, we have to get the rest of the industry to see intelligence is only as good as it informs your ability to do things, you know, differently or better. 
Yeah, so the actionable intelligence piece, absolutely spot on. And it doesn't matter whether you're working, in, as you say, in, in a theatre of operations somewhere in a commercial entity, uh, unless you've put the context in place, so you know why you're gathering the intelligence in the first place. It's, it's you know, it's pointless actually doing it. But yeah, great point. True of anything that, isn't it? I, I, only half an hour before uh, we jumped onto this podcast, I was having a, a conversation with uh, a manager, uh, uh, one of my customers, and we were talking about the why being the most important question you can ask when you when you make any move um so yeah cool ed go on let me uh i'll say your thoughts yeah that's really interesting so when i think about an offensive security perspective particularly red teaming and purple teaming we are now look when we're speaking with clients specifically it's always threat led it has it has to be threat led otherwise it's it's raw and random and not not really of much value so certainly the last 12, 18 months, I've seen a big shift in threat intel-led pen tests and red teams. And it makes for engagements that are much more impactful to clients. And then, then they, they really understand what these issues are. Instead of a you know a massive PDF with 4,000 issues, that is probably no use to anybody. There's, there's a handful or you know, a dozen of really useful and actionable issues that they can resolve. And that's it's really impactful then for the business as to say, right, we've, we've actually got rid of these issues and we know that they're important and we have to get rid of them. Go on, Chris. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point, Ed. That and, and I think that represents a paradigm shift in the market. Um, I was just having this conversation with a mate of mine uh, earlier in the week, and and we were talking about this this concept of using intelligence either as part of offensive or you know investigative uh, operations. Um, it, the market appetite isn't there. Right, because most organizations want a pen test to tick a box because of some GRC regime, or they want a forensics report to tick a box because their auditor said they had to. And the application of that wider aperture doesn't necessarily translate, you know, very well into the the current consulting model. So I think it's it is going to represent a paradigm shift for all of us in the consulting space to highlight the the need for this intelligence and how you get a better end product by incorporating it into your into your services so yeah i, I think again i couldn't agree more the, the the challenge i've always had i used to work for a threat intelligence company a few years ago well i'll call it a threat intelligence company more of an information collection company right but we had a we had a threat intelligence element to it where we had analysts human analysts working the data to turn into something useful for the organizations and, and we sold that information on or the intelligence on rather but we also sold information as well raw feeds the biggest challenge when i was there in selling this to organizations was really to try and get them to understand why they needed it and what they could do with that information so if they didn't if, if they were trying to tick a box as chris just described you know to meet some sort of compliance standard then they just come along they look at go out to the market go and buy one of the threat intelligence providers uh, services and that would be the box tick but they would nine times out of ten they wouldn't be doing anything with the information they didn't know what to do with it and it's really frustrating certainly you know on the vendor side of the fence as i was then when you're trying to sell a product that you value and you know has a high value to the organization you know you can help the organization become more robust in terms of its security and they just don't get it joining the dots you know is, isn't they're not able to join the dots on that particular product i'll give you a specific example we were trying to sell the product to a, a U.S. company, very well-known global company, actually. Um, one of their representatives came over because we'd found some some information they'd have been very interested in. So we told them about it as a freebie, but it was really a hook to try and get them across. Uh, they kept, they flew across, had a look at the information and the other products within our threat intelligence suite. Um, and they said, this is all fantastic, but the trouble is, if we know about it, we'll have to do something about it. 
and we don't we don't want to do something about it at the moment. We don't necessarily know what to do about it. So you know, trying to sell threat intelligence as a product in the market space at that time, this was a while ago now, to be fair, um, was quite challenging because people were seeing a threat intelligence product in isolation. They weren't thinking about what they could do with it more broadly in the organisation. It's not just about technical threat intelligence. It's not just about you know open source media gathering. It's, it's all that and everything in between. I don't think the market's quite there yet on it in terms of the way they. Um, way the threat intelligence companies are able to market that to potential clients i don't think so uh, i think you're right and what what we do and what we see is taking companies on a journey sounds really cliche but it's vulnerability scanning pen testing red teaming then you get the threat intel you start to feed that around and as they gain maturity which is the key thing cyber maturity that's when the real impact of good threat intel feeds into that virtuous cycle it's it's not a five minute job it's a, an 18 month 24 month journey and of course it never ends there's no tea and medals for anybody once they become secure it's just it's just a constant iteration chris pal do you want to weigh in with any thoughts on this yeah, like for, for this, we've specifically had to build bespoke threat intelligence because it just doesn't exist in the form that we do. And and, and let, let me be very realistic and very blunt. Threat intelligence, 99% of the time is I've got a recorded future license. Here's a report. Here's a feed. And I look at that and go, you're trying to sell this to me for $200,000 a year. Cool. Why do I care? And and that's how you've got it. And it, that's how vendors have got to sell stuff. We have threat intelligence internally, which is enormously beneficial and useful. But unless I see some tangible, actionable thing at the other end, good luck. I don't care. I, I have no obligation to buy your thing unless you can say to me this is going to make a tangible difference. The only way I've really been able to sell it at a board level is you may have wished you had it if something went wrong. That is not a good argument to make. Just just in case it goes bad, it's better to have it than not. And even me myself, I find myself looking at a lot of this recorded future stuff and people will sell threat intel to us and they'll sell takedown services, open source intelligence. Open source intelligence can be very useful, by the way, like that could have stopped a lot of things for us. But most of the time, day to day, someone will say, you're a banking organization, there's a new virus affecting banking organizations. And I go, saw that on Twitter. Or or something along those lines, and and unless unless there's something tangible like me that I can like grab onto and see it working, which we have, we can internally because we've built it. But I can't go, and I think for intelligence would would work a lot better if you could get the targeting like far improved targeting and far far improved reporting to that end, because we've had to build that, and no one really offers bespoke. I wish people would stop flogging record of teachers. No one really offers like bespoke. We will go and assess you as an organization and tailor it to you more so than, oh, you work in banking, do you? Here's the latest threats. And I go, awesome. Thank you. I mean, I'm not buying it, but thank you. Yeah, I think I think the, it's a good point, actually. And I think what, you know, in a nutshell, you could probably summarize what you said there to say, unless it's in the context of your organization, it's useless to you. You know, unless you've got unless you've got the internal ability to do something about that one golden nugget, it might be 0.1% of the data you've collected or information or intelligence that you've collected over that year. It's absolutely um, the only reason you're buying it is because it's an insurance blanket or a tick box for compliance framework, mm-hmm. right? And you know, um, over the over the years, I've been submitted to a number of different external assessments by a number of different organisations, some of the big four, some smaller boutique companies, and all that stuff. And um, quite often, that is one of the you know the boxes on their checklist. 
but it's probably the last thing you should do as a, as a mature organization right you, you've got basic cyber hygiene controls to get in first before we even think about dropping some honey pots in or building your own intelligence collection plan or building an intelligence collection uh, system for example and i guess you can slice it and dice it a million ways as well because you said you've got you know loads of your own internal intelligence that's probably just as valuable as the stuff you're getting from external because you can you know, you can scan your external environment. You kind of know what's going on there. But it's the internal stuff. Mo- many organizations, not all of them, um, you know, are not blind to, but they have limited visibility on. So it's a, it's a really good point. Bob, thanks, gents. And, and I guess it, it quite naturally leads us on to Chris Pogue, your question um, that you're going to bring to us as, as a talking point today. Do you want to take us through that? Sure. And that's it's uh, absolutely, Stephen. I think it's a really good segue mm. into uh, into my question is with with so much information being available to security leaders with all the different intelligence feeds and OSINT and, and things like that. What do you think is the most effective way to separate the, the, the noise from the signal and distill that information into something useful? Right. And, and, and Darren, you know, you correctly pointed out to actionable intelligence. Like, how do you how do you sort through all the junk? and get to the really good stuff that is actually going to matter to your organization. Do you want to start us off with that, Ed? Yeah, well, I'll take it from from my perspective. So when we build out red team plans, pen test plans, we start with threat intel. And and that's and it's not just Iran or China because that doesn't help anybody, which which we was what used to happen many years ago, which used to drive me bananas. But it's now proper sin, proper dark web monitoring, all those types of things. So is there an account on the dark web, for example, a trivial one. We'll use that, we'll bring that into the pen test, we'll bring that into the red team. Is there a telnet service? Is there something that is you're really vulnerable or potentially vulnerable that is externally facing that, that might be of interest? RDP is a classic example again. We'll use those things, and it's more than just scanning, there'll be a bit more to it than that. So it's, it's really important that it's just not all this noise, all this fluff, but it's actually something that you can leverage on to create a robust a pen test program, a red team engagement, that's going to be of value because otherwise there's no point doing these things if it is just a checkbox. And I'll go back to it, and it's something I go back to all the time. When you get to a certain level of maturity, you're doing the basics isn't good enough. You need to ramp up your game and continue to ramp up your game. Um, and that's where Intel, I think, really comes in. Cool. Chris, Paul, do you want to weigh in with your thoughts? Best way to do it. I think at least moving, I think people a lot of the time have i think cyber leaders have have got a really bad habit of going we just need to know everything all the time and especially with threat intel it's just there's so much noise out there that's not something you can monitor you just have to accept from the beginning we just have to forget and ignore a huge swathe of potential bad stuff and then hopefully we've built processes and systems around it A, a, a very like a salient point for us is we use or we've started to use gpt models to clarify and classify a lot of this threat intel and it's five percent wrong it's five percent wrong like you know every day which which is fine the problem that we have is that we can either be five percent wrong or have 95 percent false positives and we've just had to make the decision of having 95 percent like well formulated good data is better most of the time than having five percent of sorry having five percent of good data is better than having 95 percent of false positives all the time and like I think, I think to the point of actually using this then to formulate plans around red teaming and, and and pen testing. At least for me, but I was a pen tester. I can see how that's a very very useful exercise. 
Good luck on selling it for that one. <laughs> Good luck trying to convince a lot of people trying to do it, even if it is in their own benefit. So I think like people have said before, it's it's a tick box exercise. Cyber insurance says you've got to have this thing called treat or threat intelligence. And then someone goes and buys this threat intelligence thing and you're, you're cyber insured, right? Which is an effective business tool because people want cyber insurance. But I think clarifying move, anything that can be automated should be automated. People should become less scared of throwing data away that they don't necessarily need and integrating more AI stuff, not AI stuff where it goes, we're going to correlate a billion events, even just having something like a GPT and asking ChatGPT and go, does this kind of look right to you? And it going yes or no is probably better at clarifying a lot of stuff out there than a lot of even manual analysts trying to do on thousands of things every day. Darren, do you want to share your thoughts with us? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be really boring now and talk about asset management because, um, you know, uh, we, we did a podcast a few weeks ago. We talked about, um, obviously, about cybersecurity. I can't remember the exact topic of the conversation now, but the, the issue of identity, um, not, I beg your pardon, the issue, issue of asset management came up, the issue of identity um, uh, access management came up as well, but that's not what I was trying to say. So the issue of asset management came up, and uh, one of the one – one of the team that day said, yeah, there's a reason that it is first in nearly all of the frameworks that you, you see from a cybersecurity perspective. And um, it's around identifying your assets. And, you know, in the past when I've worked in various different organizations, you know, I've, I've um, tried to convince them that a threat intelligence feed might be a good idea as part of their overall security uh, apparatus. And they've not really been able to tell me what their assets are that they're looking after, let alone, you know, how you might join some um, dynamic threat intelligence feed to their firewall, for example. Um, so we've seen that quite a bit in the past. And again, it goes back to the basics. I think if once you've got your your basic cybersecurity controls in place for your organization, when I say basic, you know, I mean I mean a, a good level of maturity as well across the NIST cybersecurity framework as an example, then you can start thinking about um about threat intelligence as a possible advanced form of um of uh, proactive cybersecurity robbers, combine it with threat hunting, you know, combine it with the DFER team. If, if you haven't got those um, capabilities in on top of your basic cyber uh, hygiene, uh, then you, yeah, you're really wasting your money because as much as I love threat intelligence, I, I think it's a great tool. You've got to have all of those underpinning basics and capabilities in place first, otherwise you can't do anything with the information. So again, I think once you've done that, if you're gonna sort the wheat from the chaff, you need to know what the wheat is and what the chaff is, right? So again, it's, it's having an up-to-date asset list. It's understanding which version of a particular application or piece of infrastructure you're on. And again, go back to my, I use my firewall point as an illustration. You know, a few years ago, I looked at um, an organization I was part of. We had the capability on our firewalls to consume dynamic IP lists, uh, block lists, and we weren't doing it, you know, which was, again, it's a small thing, but all of these layers of security add up in terms of your speed to detection, mean time to response, all that good stuff we like to measure and talk to the board about. Um, but unless, you, unless you're, uh, like I say, unless you're in a position of maturity with those basic controls, you really are wasting your money. I, I can say hand on heart that asset management is one of the hardest things for organisations. We see it all the time. Yeah, I'd agree with that. You know, we've struggled with that. Many organisations I've been in, we occasionally get the odd surprise in, in the organisation I'm currently in, you know, but we're, we're in a much better place than we were a couple of years ago, I must say. Well, and I think those those responses, you know, first of all, thank you, gentlemen, for for your responses. I think those were great. And and I think, you know, kind of to, to you know, to wrap that up, it, it underscores the importance of, of having consultants available to help augment your security staff. Like going it alone 
is not necessarily the best answer because, you know, exactly like Darren pointed out, you may not have the skills necessary in-house to be able to parse through that data, to separate the wheat from the chaff, to distill it into something um, that's going to be meaningful for your organization. And, and instead of, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, ah, forget it, it's all too hard, I'll do it later. If this is something that's a requirement or something that's necessary per, you know, your insurance provider, GRC regime, you know, et cetera, that you have someone helping you to meet that need, uh, which I, I think is tremendously valuable. And we have customers sort of all over. I'm sure Trustwave does the same, where you augment, right? It's not a full replacement of security teams, but it's an augmentation where um, it, it enhances uh, that organization's posture by orders of magnitude, having those experts, uh, you know, in their in their hip pocket. You're absolutely right. I, I hate this expression. I'm loath to say it, but trusted advisor is is where we like. And I'm really sorry, I, but this sort of <laughs> captures captures it. Um, where we find organizations get to level of maturity and continue their maturity is when they work with us. So we'll work with them, and I'll use this again, on a red team, for example, because we do a lot of them um, for large organizations. And it's it's not just, right, this is what we're doing. It's, oh, let's let's do this. We've had this bit of threat intel. Um, and I'll use again the really simple one, some creds on the dark web. Okay, let's let's do that. Let's give that a shot. Let's see if that happens or that works. That gives us some access to something that we shouldn't be able to get to and move laterally. And it's that sort of working back and forth. And even a case of we've we're now in a position with a lot of organizations where they're coming to us saying, you know, we're using AI as an example. Um, we want to use AI for something. We're not really sure what. And threat intel is a really good, um, really good thing for for that. So we we get a lot of that, and it works really well when it's not just us being you know attacking somebody, but you know that sort of bi bilateral or trusted advisor. Sorry, <laughs> that's twice now. I was looking I for know. the cheese emoji, <laughs> but I thought. <laughs> yeah, I, I I enjoyed how how everybody's boxes lit up with a little smile or laugh as you were uh, as you were talking about that. I mentioned trusted advisor Ed. That was good. Hey, Sorry, Fab. So Chris, we'll we'll move on to on to your question now, and and I like it. It's a nice disruptive question. This one. Um, this I'll it's just my frustration. <laughs> it's my frustration <laughs> for, for 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 the same reason I was going on before. People flog me recorded features. When, when I initially did come out, I'll kind of paraphrase this with, with what we did, is when we initially went to market trying to buy Thread Intel, we we sell products. And there's a huge amount of product lines that we, uh, we sell, obviously, in credit. And one of the big security threats for us for financially and as a business is being able to know if there's particular vulnerabilities on those products, like phones, chipsets, boards. You would think that Thread Intel exists for that. It doesn't because people just have recorded futures feeds. And if it's not in the recorded futures feed, you don't get it, which irritated me to, to no end. And then I did approach a bunch of organizations and said, well, can we just pay you money to build it? And they said, we don't really know how. They just buy a feed and, and then like combine them, right? That, that's, that's what most of it does. At which point I just kind of get into this thing of as fun as it is, all this awesome stuff and as fun as it is telling me all this stuff on the dark web, the real value for us is in actual tangible threat intel. So, so my question is, does anyone here have a tangible example where threat intelligence has directly made a measurable difference to the reduction of cyber attacks? I can understand it in the, in red teaming and pen testing after after that's been said. But but even like, has this actually reduced cyber insurance premiums? Like you've turned around and gone, we've got threat intel. 
our cyber insurance premiums have dropped off or we have told this company prior that there is this big attack incoming or maybe you knew about log4j before log4j happened right because that would have been very useful is is there stuff like that that people have actually seen which i could get and buy because <laughs> <laughs> we won we're in the market right uh, that, that people have seen and, and that's that's something i would love to know amazing go on Derek. um I think it's very difficult, and I think uh, just to try to uh, crystallize your question in my head and how it would apply in my organization, I think it's very difficult sometimes to sell the value of threat intelligence to the board, for example, you know, when you're going to ask for more money, um, because they typically they haven't come from, um, a, a, you know, a, a career or a background where intelligence has been used or valued in, in, in the context of what we're talking about today. And I think um, in the past, the way I've tackled that is talked about management information as opposed to intelligence, because it's the same thing in my book. You know, if you're looking at um, a competitor to see what they're offering in the marketplace and then how you're going to you know, compete with them, you look at competitive intelligence, right? You look at management information, you look at KRIs, you look at OKRs, which are awful things, but we, we, we're stuck with them by the look of things. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, um, it is possible to, to sell it to the board in terms of the value it adds, if you're talking about the whole security function, and I'll give you a quick example. In organizations I've worked in before, we've had problems with malware that's been using um, Tor exit nodes as, as C2. So, so bringing some threat intelligence feeds, again, dynamically on uh, both firewalls and um, and routers to, to block access to those Tor exit nodes has helped, but it's only solved part of the problem, as, as we probably all realize. Um, and, and then it's about talking to them, I guess, about adding layers of protection. And that is simply another layer of protection you can have. Um, the, the, what I've done previously as well, I worked for a company um, uh, some years ago, and we used to do a lot of open source work. Um, we, we targeted the CEO of a very well-known global brand as well, um, where we were able to pinpoint where he was going to be on a particular day in December with his family switching on the Christmas lights in his hometown. So if we were activists, we could have targeted him quite easily because we gathered information from various public sources, aggregated it and formed a, you know, an assessment of where we could, it was basically a target pack. And we used to target people back in the day abroad. Um, so we we did that from purely from open sources. So that, you know, that's that's obviously one type of intelligence um, as an example. So it made a difference that organization in, the, uh, in, in terms of the way they advise their senior staff or their high risk individuals. It doesn't have to be a senior member of staff. It could be a mem- you know, member of the finance team, could be a member of, um, um, you know, could be an administrator of a system. Um, anybody that's high risk in an organization and allowed them to tailor their, uh, their personnel vetting approach and their training approach um, uh, to those individuals. So not everybody would get a blanket mandatory annual InfoSec or st- uh, cybersecurity um, uh, training and awareness package you know, be tailored to different communities within the organization based on the threat that's presented to them because of their position and public exposure. So I guess, um, uh, you know, I, I really like your question because it pulls together a couple of the other questions we've had and the discussions we've had around them. Um, and I, I think it, what it really does, though, it, it, it asks you to define or asks us all to define what we really mean by threat intelligence and whether we mean signal intelligence or open source intelligence or, you know, MASINT or any one of those other sort of um, typically military terms uh, that we use. And I, I think the challenge is really the education piece on this front. I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. Again, I could probably talk all day about this. I do quite, you know, it's quite a passion of mine, uh, threat itself, or OSINT in particular. We know a while ago I was looking at um, buying a service, which we ended up buying. Um, it's a really good service, actually. It's doing exactly what we wanted it to do. We did some market research, had some good partners advising us. Um, but, but you know, by by leadership team, we're looking at going, why do we do this? Why do we gather these stolen credits from the dark net? Why are we paying for a service like this to effectively 
buy stolen products from the uh, from, from the internet and darknet. And, and you know, then then we started to have um, uh, some desktop exercise, some, some red team exercise as well, where the red team and the desktop scenario use those stolen credits to compromise the organisation. So it's, it's stitching the whole story together. I think that's the only way you can really sell it to the organisation and prove that it does have some value. Yeah, I think I can probably hop in next. So following on from that, that, that that's what we do is specifically from an offensive perspective is show impact show the impact of creds something that's on the internet and one thing we've had a lot of success with recently is social engineering which includes uh threat intel and then folding that then into like a, a, t- a technical assessment as well we've had lots of success doing that where we've turned up various places compromised all 365 mailboxes sent an email saying we're going to check a fire extinguisher or something and and we're in and up and running and you know we've done that and and that happens more than it probably should but what it does and what, what I think it really shows is the impact and what we then do in our capacity as a trusted advisor sorry again is to um we'll present to the board um says a pen test program we present to the board you know number of criticals and highs has reduced or has increased um, as we've done more threat intel as we've done less or whatever metric we want to do so that is really useful because we you know we're able to measure measure those things and i I don't think um, i don't think every organization has that ability so i would definitely suggest working with your provider Mm. chris yeah i think yeah i think that um, to Chris Powell's point earlier about, you know, the 95.5, more isn't necessarily better because, you know, as you pointed out, I've never seen insurance premiums go down as a result of having having threat intelligence. But I have seen heaps of organizations say, oh, look at all this great information we have. Aren't, aren't, aren't we special? And, you know, my thought process is, well, not really, because you're not really doing anything meaningful with it. And so, where we sort of have this this triumvirate is between our pen testers, our cyber intelligence team, and our forensics team, where you know, kind of like Ed and 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 um, and Darren, you guys have said about you know your pen testers having that information and using it in an offensive capacity. There's also a way for us to look across that spectrum of organizations that we've responded to, to see what are those elements that have led to a compromise. So then we can feed that information to our pen testers who can now start using that as an attack vector because it's, you know, it's common and it's, and it's, and it's real. And then we feed that into cyber intel, which becomes part of our larger intel feeds. So it's not just, you know, a feed of, you know, IP addresses or, you know, binary names or hashes, but it's more of a, here's what pen testers do. Here's what, you know, the hackers are doing from our forensics team. And here's the CI team kind of pulling all that together and, and making that part of the feed. Now that's a much, much smaller corpus of information, but I think the fidelity is, is so much higher that I, I think in those instances, you know, as the question states, is there an example where it's made a measurable difference? I, I do believe that as a result of that, you know, some of our customers have avoided, you know, what would otherwise have been a successful attack uh, because they saw that and it's something that pertained to their business and there was um, uh, some tangible actions that they could take as a result of getting that intel that then lowered their, you know, their risk profile so that that specific attack, now there's, you know, a thousand others that, you know, could, could end up, uh, uh, ruining their day, but that specific attack was, was addressed. And I don't know that anyone has any real good data on, 
you know, I got this intel and it blocked, you know, this many attacks and didn't, you know, block that many. Um, and I think sort of the last thing uh, that I have on this, and I think Darren had pointed it out earlier, is this is a maturity component, right? This is not a silver bullet. This isn't even something I would put in first, right? On my list of, of priorities, this would be, you know, towards the bottom of the list. But I do think that once you have all of those other, you know, foundational components and, and you have that proper IT hygiene um, and, you know, you understand what your, you know, risk profile is, you understand what your asset management looks like, all that sort of stuff, then you layer on, you know, threat intel. And I think it will enhance, right, the overall security posture. But I, I, I think that's a, that's a much more mature down the road, later components of an organization security roadmap. Cool. Yes, I think that's, I, I agree with that 100%. I think the other thing to consider is it depends what sort of environment you're in as well, because I'm an end user organization, right? So it's, it, you know, I've, I've multiple uses for it. Um, but uh, yeah, I think when you're in an offensive uh, function, such as a pen test organization or you're red teaming, or even if you're in a detective organization, you know, where you're actually investigating um, an, an incident after the, uh, after the fact, Threat Intel's still got significant use cases and it can be hugely valuable in determining and pivoting off, you know, we, um, sorry, not pivoting off, but determining uh, where your investigation's going because you need to bottle out every avenue of inquiry, um, you know, to get to the point where you either answer the question or you need to go and you maintain searching for that question. And it's the same in any investigation you do, right? So whether it's a physical investigation in the criminal world or whether it's a cyber criminal investigation, um, You've got to you've got to pursue that that line of inquiry until you've exhausted it. And threat intelligence can often help you move left or right at the end of that blind alley. And again, you know, in the past, I've used this during forensic investigations to build the forensic search terms, the keywords do, during a traditional forensic examination, for example. So I, I do think it has its place in the security portfolio. I think organisations have to be very clear though about what the benefits are. And again, certainly to the, the people who are making the buying decisions, but also to the people that you're working with. Because quite often, you know, if, if I go in as a senior cybersecurity manager somewhere and I say, yeah, we need this, we need this, we need this, because this is what I've used before. And the team that I'm working with, others working for me, uh, they'll go, well, why, why, are we, you know, why are we buying this stuff? I don't understand what we need to do with it. So it is going back to the original statements, actually, when we opened up, it's really about context of the organization. Bob, I feel like, oh, sorry, I was going to say, I feel like a lot of people, when they come and sell it to me, I get a brochure of, we can do all these things, and I'm very much in there. Cool. My hatred of Recorded Futures, and it's not like the Recorded Futures company. <laughs> it's just when I start picking apart, they go, oh, yeah, we've got Recorded Futures. And I'm like, you can get a license cheaper than me. Is that really what I'm paying for? And they've got some takedown service, but it's always caveated. I'm like, okay, well, we've got all these people posting all these fraud videos on TikTok or YouTube or whatever it is. Can you take them down? No, but we might sometimes be able to take down a link that might, or a domain that might look like yours. And I'm like, okay, cool. Right. Like that. And that that's kind of the way it tends to go with me. It's really interesting. I think what, what uh, Chris said as well about, about has this reduced cyber premiums because i'm sure there's a lot of people that have got cyber threat intelligence because of cyber insurance and then to not reduce the premiums i would love to know the corporate governance and corporate finance processes in that company if they've just spent two hundred thousand dollars to not save anything if that if that's if the sole goal is to like decrease costs on cyber premiums like why bother getting it like that's just, i mean i think i think a lot of the times that's probably the problem 
Yeah, I, I, th- I must admit, I have a few pet peeves with cyber threat intelligence vendors as well, not specifically with with the one you mentioned, but um, the one that always ruffles my feathers a little bit is when they start talking about their analysts. You know, they've got you know 200 human analysts all around the world. They're all in the dark web forums talking to these people directly. So they're bordering then on on being um, effectively uh, undercover agents of the organisation. So I always follow that question because they always like to say that and make out they've got James Bond in every corner of the world. I always like to follow that question up with, okay, what are you doing in terms of managing that risk? You know, how do you how do you manage the human risk there with those individuals? Because we do, we want to de-risk ourselves as an organisation. So is that built into your current standard T's and C's? And how do you protect the individuals that work for you in these dark spaces? You know, so. It's, it's always quite amusing because they start stuttering quite a bit then and the standard patter drops off and that's when I start losing interest in whatever product it is they're trying to sell me because I know they're trying to sell me a, a prepaid feed typically. Bab, cheers gents. So we'll move into our final topic then um, with, with you, Ed. Uh, yep. I, I, I love the question. I'm just going to pass over to you. Yeah, thanks. So I'm I am a big fan of the MitreTag framework and I've, it's actually something I've contributed to, but I am conscious that it isn't perfect and there are gaps in it so is is the mitre attack framework fit for purpose question mark what do you think darren uh it depends what purpose you use it for right so we're, we're big fans in cybersecurity industry of saying it depends aren't we but it again it goes back to context so i love it right i'll just i'll just put that out there i think it's a great framework um i've used it um to uh to counter claims from vendors quite often because I'll say to them, you know, where's where's your mapping against the MITRE attack framework then, or the MITRE defend framework, which is which is equally useful in my book. Yeah. Um, so it's quite useful for parrying those guys, you know, when they're trying to give you the hard sell. But equally, we we've used it post red team exercises. So where we thought we were well covered with a particular control or set of controls, often that's not the case, and, and a particular attack vector against a particular asset will be proven to be vulnerable, and we can map it in the in the um, uh, the MITRE attack framework. So, um, and then, you know, apply the, the defender principles to it. So I, I think it is fit for purpose, as long as you are fully clear on the purpose you are using it for. I, obviously, it doesn't fit every single um, scenario because there are other frameworks will will do that for you. And I just, I did a quick Google earlier because I thought, well, what other frameworks are out there? And I came across one, which I quite like the sound of, not had a chance to research, the pre-attack and post-attack framework or PAPA. Um, so I quite like that. I'm going to research that one later. Um, there was another one called Threat Intelligence-Based Ethical Red Teaming Framework, which is an EU framework for the central bank there. Again, I've not come across that one before because I don't currently work in the banking or finance industry per se, but I certainly will be having a look at those because it sounds quite interesting. But yes, I do think it's fit for purpose as long as you're clear on the purpose we're using it for. Cool. Chris, Paul, what, what do you want, uh, want to weigh in on this? There's a saying called, it takes a framework to beat a framework. Which is, a, which is something cyber people have a really bad habit of doing. And you can tell about a particular technology, and this isn't necessarily ta- aimed at you, Ed, but like, you can take a particular technology or a sock and someone will go, oh, well, all the socks I've tested are terrible. I was like, well, that's kind of your job as a red team, isn't it, to bypass them? And and then, I, then I'm here as a CISO going, but I still need a sock. Like, I still need a framework. So unless you've got something better, like that, that's kind of the problem. And like, yeah, things can improve and things can change, but is it fit for purpose? Yeah, 100% because it's probably better than anything else out there. The, the one thing I would say for me is, like as a CISO, as, as a consumer of MDR and XDR services, do I care about MITRE? No. Like, why would I? It, I'm not going to get into the weeds of mapping out the boot, maybe at a product level, but unless I'm the person that's implementing it on a security level, 
I'm paying some sort of external provider to monitor the security for me. And at some point, I, I presume the XDR and the MDR people will be using the MITRE, MITRE attack framework. Me, myself, as a CISO, am I going to go in and say, this file has you know has written this boot logon initialization script at this particular directory? No. Like, if it comes down to an instant response thing, yes. But beyond that, day-to-day, am I going to be, like, looking and, and programming our ent- entire organizations to do this and do threat hinting and threat detecting for this probably not if it comes to threat modeling and you're you're using something like stride to build new systems or you're using the mitre attack from 100 i get it like 100 if it's day-to-day there's some malware thing that we've got to go looking for I, i'm just not going to be looking for scheduled tasks and jobs and native api calls across the entire organization so for, for, from like that perspective no it does take a model to build a model. I don't really know anything better that does what it does. Doesn't mean it's perfect. But if you're threat modeling, great. If you're XDR provider, great. Beyond that, I don't have much use for it. Okay. And uh, Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't think I'm going to add anything, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> more meaningful than 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 Darren and, and, and Chris already pointed out. So I'll I'll, I'll answer it in, in a bit of a different way. Um, and, and I think it 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 highlights the complexity of the, the landscape that we have to protect, right? As whether it's the MITRE attack uh, you know, uh, uh, framework or it's you know something that that CISA puts out or it's I mean any number of the you know reports or or analyses by any security company anywhere in the world. Um, there's a lot there and, and there's a lot of information and there's a lot of, of things that have to be put in place at, 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 at multiple levels. And, and I think the challenge that, that CISOs face uh, around the world is that you got to be right every time and the bad guys only got to be right once. And so having these frameworks and these different sorts of, of, you know, models in place, I, I think is great. I think you need to pick which ones, you know, to Darren's point are valuable to you that will give you, you know, some sort of outcome that you're looking for and and stick with that and not get analysis paralysis because of all of the different, you know, pieces of information that are coming your way. Um, and then that's where I think as well, having, you know, trusted advisors, I'll, I'll, I'll use Ed's word, <laughs> uh, to, to help you distill that. Um, having, you know, Intel um, capabilities, whether that's internally as as Chris does or through a partner that can help you with that that distillation process of that information. I, I think that's all all valuable. But I think, you know, to Chris's point, if it's just a thing, I, I, I don't know that I would care. Right. I'm I'm and I think this is one of the things that that CISOs and and just in the security community we get better at is speaking the language of the board and speaking the language of the rest of the executive team. Right. Most of us have grown up in tech and that's the language we speak. And and we wonder why, you know, for years and years we haven't been able to get the funding that we wanted or or you know, the the rest of the C suite hasn't taken the CISO as seriously as they probably should have. But I think getting to the point now where we can begin to translate all of these deeply technical terms and concepts into a language that the rest of the C-suite and board is familiar with, I think that will help propel um, you know, security posture and, and awareness and, and, and things like that, that will make these sorts of things like the MITRE attack, work, MITRE attack framework more valuable and more meaningful. Um, but I think that's, that's a, a long road to hoe. Um, and, 
you know, something that we need to um, actively take part in. Um, but I think uh, if we can do that, I think we'll start to see some some significant changes. Fantastic stuff. Well, thank you very much, gents. Uh, before we formally end the podcast, I'd like to say thank you very much to all of our guests for sharing their thoughts uh, in today's discussion. Once again, our guests on today's podcasts have been Darren Desmond from the AA Group, Chris Pogue from CyberCX, Chris Powell from MCOPA, and Ed Williams from TrustWave. If you're starting to plan your 2024 talent strategy, if you're actively hiring for new security talent at the moment, or indeed if you're looking for a new role yourself, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, come and be one of our trusted advisors and drop me a message too. I'm Stephen Mann, and you can find me on LinkedIn, or you can drop me an email at Stephen with a PH dot man m-a-n-n at evolutionjobs.co.uk or you can visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash uk thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening we hope you can join us next time 